Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge take a moment visit betterhelp.com gold today to get 10 percent off your first month that's betterhelp help.com slash gold the peter ship show i think the action in the stock market and in the gold market yesterday potentially is telling as to the future course of of both markets. And I know, you know, there may be some people that want to dismiss yesterday's action because of the quadruple expiration of various options and futures contracts. This is an event that happens in the markets every quarter. Uh, But I think beneath the surface, I think the market action actually is telling you potentially that we have exhausted this bear market rally in the stock market. At one point, I think the Dow was up about 400 points, maybe a little bit more, yet we closed down about 200 points, a little bit off the lows. I think the lowest I saw was down a little over 300. Uh, But the the sell-off, I think, uh, portends a much bigger sell-off coming. And in fact, in the morning, everything was up. It wasn't just the stock market that gapped higher, gold gapped higher, gold stocks gapped higher. But while uh, the overall stock market surrendered the rally, although the Nasdaq did manage to finish, uh, you know, in in, in the black, all the other indexes uh, were negative. But while stocks in general gave up their early morning gains, gold did not. I mean, they tried to sell gold off a couple of times, uh, but it didn't it didn't happen. So gold uh, closed uh, very close to the highs of the day. I mean, off by a few dollars, but still up about twenty dollars. Maybe the high was up twenty four, twenty five. We settled at seventeen forty four ish, which 
is the highest weekly close of the entire bull market. So this is the best gold has ended the week, not only of the year, but of this entire rally. So gold is continuing to look like it's getting ready to break out. Now, gold stocks are quite a bit from their highs, right? They're not nearly as close to their highs as gold itself. But I think that, again, that is a reflection of the skepticism with which investors have always viewed the the rally in gold, right? We haven't had a lot of bullishness. People have been nervous the entire bull market. We've been climbing this wall of worry, and that is obvious in the reluctance of investors to bid up the price of gold stocks. Yet the price of gold has been dragging gold stocks higher the entire time. Now, every once in a while, we'll get a point where there is some enthusiasm and you'll get gold stocks leading for a while. But then as soon as there's a pullback, uh, they get hit very hard because people have one foot out the door, even the bulls, because people haven't still fully embraced this bull market. But I think we're very close to that happening. I think uh, this might have been a significant uh, day and week in indicating that the stock market is about to break down and gold and gold stocks are about to break out. Now, you know, some people were maybe attributing the decline on Friday to the announcement from Apple that they would have to be reshuttering some of the stores that recently reopened, not all of them, but just in certain areas. Uh, where there was a bigger outbreak of COVID-19 that they would have to shut down. And maybe that did get some people thinking that maybe the reopening is not going to go as smoothly as as, as people think. Uh, but I think there was a lot more to it than this, that one news announcement. Although I do think that as the fundamental news continues to, to play out, the scenario is going to be very, very bearish for stocks. Because the way this rally really got started, right, everybody was surprised by the severity and how rapid the plunge was, right? We had a record move from record highs to bear market. We'd never seen that happen before. So the market was very surprised uh, by what happened and stocks got killed in a very, very short period of time. So the initial shutdown of the economy uh, was much worse than markets had anticipated. But now this rebound, right, the so-called reopening, a lot of the economic news has been better than people anticipated. So people had prepared for the worst, and so far they didn't get the worst. Now they're getting something that's not as bad as they thought. And so that has created some sense of optimism. And so the markets have recovered. But, you know, people still don't realize or, you know, don't remember that before the market dropped, it was priced for perfection and substantially overvalued. So there is no reason for the market to return to the level that it occupied prior to the collapse because it never should have occupied that territory in the first place. And a lot of the factors that that was built on, right, the successful resolution of the trade war uh, with, with China, I mean, that's fallen apart. The idea that Trump was going to easily coast to a second term. He is now as long a shot as he's ever been to win re-election. Look at the poll numbers. Look at the betting odds. Uh, you know, the, the odds have never been this slim for Trump to win a second term. 
And it was the Trump tax cuts that were largely responsible for the higher valuations assigned to U.S. stocks. Well, now you have to take those uh, valuations away because if Trump loses, the tax cuts are not only gone, they're going to be replaced by tax hikes. Corporate taxes will be higher under uh, Biden than they were under Obama. There's no way that's not going to be the case, uh, especially given the enormity of the deficits. It's not all going to be money printing. It's going to be mostly money printing. But uh, we're going to have much, much higher taxes on corporations and so-called rich. And so none of that has been discounted into the market. You just have all this optimism. But where I think the optimism is going to be replaced by realism, which will be pessimism, is in the relapse, right? You have three stages. You have the initial shutdown of the economy. Then you have the rebound as some of the businesses that shut down start back up. But then you're going to have the relapse, right? As a lot of the businesses that start back up reshut down. And as people start to realize that we are not recovering back to where we were, we're recovering, yet we're still going to be in a recession slash depression because the economy was going to turn down even if we never had COVID-19, even if we didn't have these mandated uh, business shutdowns. We were long overdue for a recession anyway. We had the longest expansion in history. A recession was going to start. To think that that recession is already over, that somehow a recession that began uh, worse than any in U.S. history, even worse than the Great Depression, that it's already over, that it's going to be a one, two quarter phenomena, that is ridiculous. This recession started with a bang for a reason, because it is going to last for a long, long time and be much worse than anybody imagined. And I think this is going to start to be factored in to stock prices. So we've got this euphoric rebound. You have all this crazy speculation. You know, you got people buying uh, bankrupt stocks. You got, you know, day traders, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, leading a merry, their band of men on Robin Hood, you know, uh, picking Scrabble letters out of a bag and just, you know, thinking all you have to do is buy a stock and you can't lose because stocks only go up. Yes, there is this uh, crazy sense of euphoria that is in the market, thanks to the Fed. But as far as I'm concerned, it looks like that the risks are heavily weighted to the downside for U.S. stocks, and it will correspond to a upside breakout in the price of gold and in gold stocks. The other shoe, though, that needs to drop is a breakdown in the U.S. dollar. The U.S. dollar is still defying gravity. Didn't go up, but it didn't really uh, go down much this week. But I think the dollar is on the precipice of a significant decline. I think the same is going to be true of, of Bitcoin. You know, I think Bitcoin, it looks very, very toppy to me. Uh, Bitcoin is not rallying. It is not up near the highs uh, like the price of gold is, whereas gold looks like it's getting ready to break out. Bitcoin looks like it's getting ready to break down. Uh, so those of you who think you're taking refuge in an alternative to dollars and you've chosen Bitcoin, you made the wrong choice. You still have an opportunity before the bottom drops out of that market to correct that mistake. And obviously, if you bought Bitcoin a long time ago, 
you actually can correct the mistake with a big gain. You got lucky that other people uh, made the same wrong decision that you did. And because you had so many people making a foolish decision, the price went up. Look, that can always happen. Look at, you know, bankrupt company stocks. The price can go up if enough foolish people are willing to buy them. And that means the people that were foolish first can get out and sell to the people who were foolish later. But it doesn't mean that they weren't foolish or they simply were anticipating what other fools would do and they wanted to gamble on it. But what happens is a lot of fools end up as bag holders because they don't recognize why the stock went up and they hold it all the way down. And that's what's going to happen to a lot of these Bitcoin holders uh, who don't understand why they made money in Bitcoin. They don't understand that they got lucky because a bunch of fools made the same mistake they did. But if they don't recognize that, uh, then they're going to be left holding the bag as the bottom drops out of the market. You know, one of the other uh, economic data points that is creating a false sense of optimism about, you know, the strength of this rebound, I think has to do with the housing numbers, which have been very surprisingly strong uh, throughout this, you know, entire recession. You've got, you know, these uh, uh, mortgage rates have gone down and that's been helpful but you've had this big jump in, in applications and, and people buying homes. And the interpretation is that this is indicative of some type of underlying strength in the housing market. And I don't think that's the case at all. I think the overall housing market is going to be weak. But there are certainly some factors that motivated uh, behavior in the short run. Part of it had to do with the plunge in um in mortgage rates, which made it easier for people to afford to buy homes. Uh, but I also think that there were some people that may have been holding out for better prices uh, that finally had to sell and accept uh, the price that the market would pay. Uh, so I think that some of the sellers may have been more motivated, and that might have been one of the reasons that more uh, properties were able to change hands uh, because there was a perception among the buyers that they were getting a good deal. I don't know that they were, uh, but I think that you now had more motivation of the people who needed to sell to sell. But I think a bigger part of the issue had to do with a lot of people living in urban areas deciding that they needed to move to the country or the suburbs. I think you had a rush of uh, suburbanites uh, all of a sudden looking to buy homes uh, in, in, in the country to get out of the city. Initially, just to escape uh, COVID-19 and, and the quarantine, right? But then, because of crime, I think the, uh, the perception is that crime is going to be on the rise in the cities, that the police are going to be reluctant uh, to police as vigorously as they had in the past. They don't want to uh, be uh, called racist. They don't want to risk uh, criminal charges. Uh, so the police are going to be reluctant to act as decisively as they did in the past. Uh, that criminal behavior is going to be emboldened uh, because they're going to realize that the police are in a box and therefore they have carte blanche uh, to commit more crimes. And I think that is going to scare a lot of people uh, into wanting to uh, move out of these the cities where the crime is likely to to increase. So you've got that and you've got uh, COVID and not not just what just happened, but the idea that if it can happen once, it can happen again. 
you know, and if you're going to have to be quarantined, I mean, people who are living in apartments in cities, especially if they have kids and, you know, they shut down the parks. I mean, you're all cooped up in a little apartment. It's much better if you have your own house, you have your own yard, you have your own playground there, you know, you have more space. Uh, it, you're not as negatively affected by having to stay at home if you have a nice home with a lot of space versus a small apartment uh, in a city. And of course, cities are more congested. I mean, if the diseases are out there, you're more likely to contract them. If you're in a densely populated city uh, than in, uh, in, in, the, in the country. So that's another reason to be in the country because you have less of a chance. But also now we've got all these people working at home. I think what happened is when a lot of people uh, were working from home and they were in the city and they realized that they could work from home, the idea was, well, what the hell am I doing in a city? If I can work from home, I might as well work from home out in the country. I'm in the city because I don't want to commute. I didn't want to spend an hour, an hour and a half each morning and then again in the evening in traffic or on the train. But if I'm not having to come into the office, why am I paying all this money to live in a tiny apartment? So I think a lot of people jumped to this conclusion and, you know, all of a sudden went out to, to, uh, to buy real estate. And so I think that temporarily is skewing the numbers. I think after the initial rush, I think you're going to see a back off. Although I do think the trend away from living in cities and a new preference uh, for the country is, is going to be a big trend that is going to be in motion for many, many years. So I think you're going to see an exodus uh, from these cities, which is going to have big implications for these cities. You're going to have a destruction of the tax base, which is going to make it harder to provide services, which is going to make it even, you know, create even more reasons for people to want to get out. Uh, but also it has a big impact on relative real estate value. As a public person, I am hyper aware of safety and security. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays offline. Delete Me is a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web, and in the process, helps prevent potential ID theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports showing what information they found, where they found it, and what they removed. Delete Me isn't just a one-time service. Delete Me is always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information that you don't want on the internet. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. Now at a special discount for my listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeletemecom gold and use the promo code gold at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash gold and enter code gold at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash gold, code gold. In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. 
seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. I think you're going to see big declines in the value of urban apartments in the big cities relative to uh, the prices out in the suburbs in the country, right? That's going to change. And that also has big implications for the mortgage lenders because some of the most expensive properties are these downtown, you know, big city uh, condos. And when nobody wants them, the prices are going to implode. I mean, you won't be able to give these things away. And so you're going to talk about substantial losses from the lenders uh, resulting from an exodus from the cities. But I would not look at the housing data that has come out in the last month or two as being somehow indicative that, hey, there's a lot of strength here in the economy that we that we were overlooking. There isn't strength at all. There's a lot of weakness. In fact, some of the, the real estate sales are actually masking this underlying weakness. But as the, the months go by and we get fully into the relapse, just like people were uh, optimistic because the rebound was stronger than expected, and that was a, uh, a motivation for buying equities, they're going to be equally surprised by the severity of the relapse, how much weaker the economy ultimately gets, because, again, they don't understand that we were headed to recession anyway. This, the COVID-19 is just a handy, a convenient scapegoat. I mean, everybody from the Federal Reserve to Congress, everybody is going to try to blame all of the economic problems on COVID-19 and on the response that we were forced uh, to, to enact, those, those policies to keep us safe and protect us from uh, the pandemic, right? But the reality is a severe recession was going to get started anyway. And that recession is just being compounded by the problems, not only of COVID, but of the self-inflicted problems of the overreaction to COVID. Which brings me to the Federal Reserve again, because the last time I did my podcast, it was the day after uh, Powell had testified before the United States Senate. Well, the following day, he was up 
uh, on Capitol Hill again, testifying before the House of Representatives. And, you know, one of the most interesting aspects of the testimony, and and this was true both days, is the lack of opposition to what the Fed is doing. I mean, at least if you go back to the hearings that Bernanke had when they first did QE1, there were a lot of people who were skeptical about what the Fed was doing, particularly Republicans, right, were skeptical about money printing and, 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 and the Fed creating problems with its policy. But pretty much everybody is in agreement that the Fed is doing the right thing, even the Republicans. I mean, nobody is worried. Now, sure, you have a lot of people who are mistaken in that they believe that the criticism of Bernanke was unwarranted because we didn't have any problems, that all that, that that, that worked, that QE uh, saved us and it worked. Well, the fact that we have QE4 is proof that it didn't work, right? The fact that we had to do it over and over and over proves that when we did it the first time, it didn't work. And it, if it worked, we wouldn't have had to do it again. In fact, when they initially proposed it, it was because it was going to work and it was never going to be done again. The fact that it's, you know, a decade later and we're doing the same thing, you know, is all the proof you need that we never should have done it in the first place. Yet everybody wants to assume that it worked just because we didn't have a dollar crisis, just because we didn't have, you know, hyperinflation. Now, a lot of this stuff is going to happen anyway, but just because those things didn't happen didn't mean that what the Fed did back then didn't cause a lot of damage because it did. But the point is, or my point, is that that skepticism is completely gone. Everybody just accepts the fact that what the Fed is doing is a good idea, that buying bonds, buying you know junk bonds, that this is, this is acceptable, that this is good. And in fact, every single congressman who questioned uh, Powell began his or her comment by praising Powell and thanking him for the job that he's doing, for the help that he is providing to the economy and to the American people. And right there, the fact that you're getting all this widespread praise from Congress is proof in and of itself that Powell is doing a lousy job. The job of the chairman of the Federal Reserve is not to be popular. In fact, it's the opposite. It's to do things that are unpopular. That's why the Fed is independent, right? So they don't have to do things that are politically popular or expedient so they can make the difficult and unpopular choices. Look, the last good Fed chairman we had was Paul Volcker, and he wasn't popular with anybody other than Ronald Reagan. And one of the good things that Reagan did was he defended Paul Volcker, unlike uh, um, President Trump, who is highly critical of Powell, when Powell was barely raising interest rates and he was beating the hell out of them, rates went to 20% when Ronald Reagan was president. And he didn't have one unkind word to say about Paul Volcker. He stood up, he stood behind Paul Volcker. Can you imagine Donald Trump doing that? Complete opposite. You know, people want to say that he's like Ronald Reagan. He's not. I said from the beginning, he is the Republican Jimmy Carter. That is who Donald Trump is, the Republican Jimmy Carter. He is a one-term president of a party, and he's going to be sandwiched between the terms of two other parties, right? 
because before Jimmy Carter was president, we had Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford. So we had Republican presidents, and then all of a sudden, we had one uh, Democrat. So we had eight years of Republicans, and then we had four years of a Democrat, followed by eight years of Republican, which was Reagan. And so Carter was really a bridge to Reagan, because what happened was we got some bad economic problems that happened under Republicans. The public wanted an outsider, and so they picked the peanut farmer from Georgia, right, Jimmy Carter, as an outsider to basically drain the swamp and and clean up Washington. Plus, you know, you know, you had the lingering effects of Watergate, so they wanted an outsider, but. When Carter came in and simply really continued the failed policies of, of Nixon when it comes to the economy, the economic problems, the inflation, the unemployment got worse under Carter, not better. And that provided the impetus for the nation to to move to Reagan. So we went from liberal Republicans and we backlash to conservative Republicans because the nation became so disillusioned with Jimmy Carter, right? There was hope that Carter would change things, but it got worse. And in fact, had it not been for Carter, electing Ronald Reagan probably never would have been possible. I don't think the country would have been willing to do that. I mean, the last time somebody like Reagan ran, it was Barry Goldwater, and he got destroyed uh, by Lyndon Johnson. But, you know, Reagan was actually more conservative than Goldwater, yet Reagan won in a landslide. Whereas Goldwater was destroyed in a landslide. And, 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 and what was the difference? I mean, it was only 20 years, right, between the 1960s or 1980s. The difference was Jimmy Carter and how bad things got under Carter. Well, I was saying from the beginning, that's going to happen in reverse with Trump, right? The economy was actually bad under Obama, even though people claimed it was good. Trump was brought in as an outsider to clean up Washington and drain the swamp. And since he failed to do that and simply continued the failed policies of Obama, now the nation is going to backlash. And instead of going hard right, like we did under Reagan, we're going to go hard left. And even though we're not electing Bernie Sanders, we're electing Joe Biden. Joe Biden is going to govern as if he were Bernie Sanders, because it's the Bernie Sanders ideology, the AOC ideology that is now controlling the Democratic Party. And so when we elect Biden, that's what we're electing. We're going to have a Democratic administration that is going to be far to the left of any uh, Democratic administration that we've had. But to go back to the point I was making before I digressed uh, down down this road is that nobody in Congress was criticizing the Fed, right? Everybody was praising Powell for his help. Well, you know, we don't want that. We want a Fed chairman to do what Volcker did, to take away the punch bowl, not to be the one spiking it with alcohol. We don't want the Federal Reserve to be helpful in enabling the government to go deeper into debt, right? To, to, to spend more money. We want a Fed that is going to impose discipline on Congress and the federal government, right? It's when the Federal Reserve is unpopular, not only with Congress, but with the public. That's when you know the Fed is doing a good job. When everybody loves the Fed, when everybody is praising the Fed, then you know the Fed is not doing its job. 
which it's not. And I think the problem, too, lies in the fact that so many people actually believe that the Fed is there to help the economy, that it's that that its purpose, that that's the role of the Fed, right, to conduct monetary policy in a way that actually helps the economy. And, you know, a lot of these congressmen were reiterating the fact that we need to take action because you have a lot of people who, through no fault of their own, are unemployed and maybe it's going to take a long time for them to get their jobs back. You know, maybe they worked in restaurants or they worked in travel and leisure or something like that. And who knows how long it's going to be before they can get those jobs back. And so it's up to the government to tide them over and to make them whole and to make sure that they don't lose because this isn't their fault. And this is not government's job. I mean, it's not only not the Fed's job, it's not the government's job to make everybody whole. Look, you know, life sometimes, you know, throws you throws you p- problems. I mean, nobody is guaranteed, you know, a life where you never have to lose. You know, if you, you know, have lost your job and if people are reluctant to go uh, back to restaurants and now you can't get a job as a waiter, well, you got to get a job doing something else. I mean, just because you have a job today doesn't mean that the government guarantees that you're going to have that exact same job tomorrow. People are going to have to adapt. If there's no more demand for what you were doing in the past, then you better figure out something else that you can do in the future. The government doesn't owe you a living because the government can't provide you with a living because the government doesn't have anything. It doesn't matter whose fault it is. If you're in trouble, even because it's not your fault, it's not up to the federal government uh, to, to bail you out or to, you know, to, to make you whole. But everybody was agreeing that this is what needs to be done. And it's the Federal Reserve that needs to do it. Right? Because the perception is the Federal Reserve has access to money that maybe Congress doesn't. But the Federal Reserve only has access to a printing press. Printing money doesn't create purchasing power. I've talked about that many times. Pr- printing money just redistributes purchasing power. Well, that's what Congress does. Congress redistributes purchasing power through taxation when they take money from one person and give it to somebody else. All the Federal Reserve can do is redistribute purchasing power another way through inflation by taking the value of money from one person and giving it to something somebody else. So the, the Con- Federal Reserve isn't doing anything that Congress can't do. It just has a sneakier way of going about it. But it's because there is a perception that there is no cost when the Fed prints money that you now have all this pressure on the Federal Reserve to print it and to give it out to make everybody whole. But the Fed can't make everybody whole. It can't make, you know, if if it makes some people whole, it's at the expense of other people, right? So if if we're going to say that the people who are losing for no fault of their own need to be made whole, well, then who is going to make them whole? It's other Americans are going to have to be taxed through no fault of their own in order to make sure that these other Americans uh, aren't going to suffer. But the politicians don't want to acknowledge that the only way to make some people whole is to take other people and and uh, and, and put a hole in their pockets, right? They have to be made even less than whole. I mean, you could have some 
wealthier individuals who are still employed, but maybe they're making less money than they were before because of COVID. And now they have to make even less because some of their money has to be taken uh, to, to bail out people who the politicians feel are more deserving of the money. But all of this overlooks the basic uh, idea or the basic reality that the Federal Reserve is powerless to help the economy, right? The Federal Reserve cannot create economic growth by printing money. It can't create jobs by printing money. It can only create inflation. Now, if you think inflation is the way to create prosperity, if you think inflation leads to economic growth and jobs, then, well, maybe you think the Fed can help. But if you believe that, you'd be wrong. You know, and in fact, if you go back to the uh, original Federal Reserve Act, 1913, the Federal Reserve Act, and I've talked about this before, but I'll talk about it again. The original Federal Reserve Act, there was nothing in there about the Federal Reserve having any role in trying to help the economy. This is the original mandate of the Federal Reserve that existed from 1913 until 1977. The Federal Reserve shall furnish an elastic currency to afford means of rediscounting commercial paper and to establish a more effective supervision of banking in the United States. That's it. Those were the three missions of the Federal Reserve. Provide an elastic money supply. And if you don't know what that means, right, an elastic money supply meant that the money supply would expand and contract like a rubber band, with the economy. So when the economy was expanding, the Fed would expand the money supply to accommodate an expanding economy. And then when the economy was contracting, then the Fed would contract money supply along with the economy. And so the idea behind that would be price stability. Even though there is no specific charge of price stability, it was believed that an elastic money supply would be more conducive to stable prices over the business cycle. But what does the Fed do now? Do they provide an elastic money supply? No, they actually provide the opposite of that because the money supply never contracts. It only expands. In fact, today, the Federal Reserve expands the money supply when the economy is expanding. But then when the economy contracts, Instead of contracting money supply, which was its original mission, it expands it even faster, right? That's what we do when we have a recession. They print more money. The Fed becomes more accommodative during the recession than it was during the expansion when it was created for the opposite purpose, right? So we, the Fed is acting in diametrically opposed to why it was created. And in fact, had the the people who supported the Federal Reserve in 1913, had they proposed that the Federal Reserve expand the money supply continuously the way it's doing it now, the Federal Reserve Act never would have been enacted into law. Nobody would have passed it. Nobody would have been dumb enough uh, to agree with that at the time, right? But, you know, once the camel's nose was under the tent, once we had a Federal Reserve, well, then we were able to, uh, you know, make it much worse uh, by giving it these powers or changing its mandate. And that mandate, right, stayed there. 
until 1977. Now, the other thing, uh, to afford a means of rediscounting commercial paper. If you don't know what that means, commercial paper is short-term debt issued by corporations. And what that meant was the Federal Reserve could buy that debt at a discount and reissue it with its own credit. So in other words, it was acting as a bank because all banks uh, rediscounted uh, commercial paper. So the Federal Reserve was going to act as a bank, right? I mean, that's what it was doing. And then the other thing it was doing was to supervise other banks, right? So it was supervising the banks. There's nothing in there about the economy. That didn't happen until 1977. 1977, they amended the Federal Reserve Act, and this is what they replaced those words with. This is the new mandate. To promote effectively the goals of maximum employment, stable prices, and moderate long-term interest rates. So none of those goals were in the original Federal Reserve Act of 1913. So why did Congress in 1977 believe that the Federal Reserve could actually do any of these things? And the reason is, during the 1970s, the economy was very bad, right? We had stagflation. We had rising unemployment. We had rising inflation. And we had rising interest rates, right? Those are the very three things that the Federal Reserve was charged, or the three problems that the Federal Reserve was charged with solving, this was all political. Government was looking for a scapegoat and they were looking for an easy way out. They had all these problems and they wanted to pretend that the Federal Reserve could actually solve them. So they changed the Federal Reserve Act. They said, hey, Federal Reserve, it's your responsibility to make sure that unemployment isn't too high, that we have stable prices and that we don't have interest rates that are too high, right? The Federal Reserve was now charged with that in 1977. And the irony of it is the reason that we had rising inflation, rising interest rates and rising unemployment was because of the Fed. What was the Fed doing wrong in the 1970s? Well, it was monetizing government debt. It was doing precisely what it's doing today. Only today it's doing it on a much bigger scale and far more recklessly uh, than what the Fed was doing back then. But the U.S. government was running big deficits in the 1960s and the 1970s, which the Federal Reserve decided to monetize. Instead of refusing to buy those bonds and allowing interest rates to be even higher, uh, the Fed intervened and basically did the equivalent of QE. I mean, they didn't call it quantitative easing, but that's what they were doing. They were expanding the balance sheet. They are buying U.S. government debt, and they were printing money to do it. And that was resulting in rising prices, which was pushing up interest rates. It was weakening the economy. So they basically charged the Federal Reserve with solving the very problems the Federal Reserve was creating. And that's why those problems actually got worse, right? Look what happened after 1977. Once the Federal Reserve was now in charge of uh, price stability and keeping interest rates low and, and, and keeping unemployment down. Unemployment went up. Interest rates went way up. Inflation got even higher, right? It wasn't until Paul Volcker actually came in in, um, in um, you know, 1980 and really ignored uh, two out of those three mandates and really just focused on prices and, 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 and inflation, Right. And they call it a dual mandate now, even though technically there's three things there because it's employment, interest rates and prices. But really, people, sometimes they lump in 
uh, interest rates and inflation as one mandate and then employment as the other. But it's a, it's a false idea to believe that the Federal Reserve can create jobs, that the Federal Reserve can, you know, uh, solve a problem of unemployment. It can't. All the Federal Reserve can create is inflation. And creating inflation doesn't create jobs. But just because that mandate is there, that's why I believe a lot of politicians believe falsely that the U.S. government, or the Federal Reserve rather, can affect economic policy, right? That you have two forms of economic policy. You have monetary policy and you have fiscal policy and that the Fed conducts monetary policy, but that the goal of monetary policy is a strong economy, to create prosperity, to create economic growth. That's not the case. That's not why we had a Federal Reserve. That there, there, there was not one argument made to that effect when they were bringing about the Federal Reserve. Right? It wasn't until later, it wasn't until the Federal Reserve helped screw up the economy that now people believed that the Federal Reserve could actually do something positive to help the economy. Now, to the extent that a sounder banking system and elastic money supply, uh, you know, would be good for the economy. Well, sure. People believe that by pursuing those banking functions, right, the Fed could be helpful to the economy. Sure. But they did not believe that there was any specific monetary policy that the Fed would pursue that would help the economy. And again, how do you help the economy? By printing money, right? You don't create anything of value when you simply add more units of money and stir it in the economy. The money is simply there as a way of dividing up what we've produced, right? So the more money that you accumulate, the greater claim you have to the overall production of the economy. But as long as the money that you have is related to the input that you provide, right? So as you provide goods and services into the economy, you earn money. And now that money that you've earned by putting goods and services into the economy, now that allows you to claim goods and services to take out of the economy. So that's when it works. But when you have the Federal Reserve just putting money into the economy, having done nothing to put goods and services in the economy, all that's happening is you're diluting the purchasing power of the money that exists. The only reason the damage is not being immediately uh, inflicted and evident is because of the trade deficits and the reserve currency status of the United States and the fact that we're able to export this inflation and all these dollars are temporarily housed overseas and they're going into bonds instead of consumer goods or other financial assets. But those days are coming to an end. We have pushed this envelope as far as you possibly can and it's about to break. We are on the precipice of the end of this monetary system, right? And because we have taken it to this degree, right? Because we are now so emboldened, right? From having exercised this exorbitant privilege for so long that we think that the deficits that we're running now are sustainable, that we can have trillion dollar a month deficits, that we can run the entire federal government practically with a printing press, right? That there's no program that we can't afford, 
because all we have to do is print the money to pay for it, right? When we have the attitude that, you know, we have to thank the Federal Reserve for, you know, its generosity in how, you know, how willing it is to print money and give it out, this is going to scare the rest of the world into abandoning a system that it should have abandoned a long, long time ago. And because it didn't, the global economic imbalances have only gotten much, much worse uh, than would have been the case had the world uh, done the right thing sooner with respect to rejecting uh, the dollar's role as the reserve currency. But since nobody is worried about this, nobody sees this train coming, this is exactly what's about to happen. And I really think it's going to play out probably during the, the term of, of, of Biden. I mean, obviously, if Trump is reelected, which is a long slot, then it will happen under Trump. Uh, but it's most likely going to happen under Biden, although it is possible that the whole thing can collapse before Trump finishes his term. But I think the lion's share of this is going to play out under Biden. And that might be our one shot, right? Because things are going to get so bad in the first term of Biden that maybe we have a shot of making sure that he doesn't have a second term. Uh, and maybe we can have, uh, you know, a, a real free market guy uh, running in 2024. Whether he'll have a chance of winning, uh, that remains to be seen. But that's one uh, one bright light that we can potentially hope for. But in the meantime, I think that people ought to look at the action, the technical action that I pointed to earlier in the podcast in the markets and realize uh, that they need to take action. If you haven't already done so, get more and more money out of U.S. stocks. You know, I was listening on CNBC, Jeremy uh, Grantham, hedge fund manager, uh, very, very good interview on CNBC, one of the rare good interviews on CNBC. Uh, And basically his advice to American investors was to sell all of their U.S. stocks, 100%, sell everything and just buy emerging markets and close your eyes uh, and you'll do really well. And I agree that the emerging markets represent a very good investment opportunity, but I also would include, you know, gold stocks and some other developed market stocks. I'm not all in on emerging markets, but I very much agree uh, with Grantham's sentiment that the U.S. stock market is a disaster waiting to happen. Uh, We are on the precipice of a major long-term bear market. The only thing that might obscure it is the substantial inflation that will make it harder to detect the severity of the downturn if you're simply measuring it in depreciating dollars. Uh, But if you look at it in terms of gold, or certainly if you compare the performance, uh, let's say 10 years from now, if you look back and compare the performance to the U.S. stock market versus emerging market stock markets, uh, I think the U.S. will pale in comparison to those markets. Uh, So there are, you know, other guys. Look at um, uh, Stephen Roach. Uh, who many cases, Stephen and I have been on the same page on a lot of things, uh, but he has never really been nearly as apocalyptic as me when it comes to the dollar's demise. Now he's on the same page. I mean, he is out there now forecasting a major collapse in the value of the dollar, an end of the dollar's reserve currency status, uh, big time inflation. So he has been one of the few guys uh, from Wall Street that actually understood these problems and has been warning about them over the decades, but his warnings were never that dire until right now. Uh, And so you have other people joining me, and there's a little bit of a choir going on, although we're still in the the minority, of people who are now 
saying that the worst case scenario is upon us and we're about to see this major uh, economic collapse uh, centered uh, on the dollar, a, a, a collapse of the monetary system that is going to lead to a massive degradation of the American standard of living. And it's going to happen at a time uh, where we're very vulnerable based on the politics of the day uh, to embrace socialism in a way that we've never done it and to empower government in ways never before uh, imagined. So the point is, act quickly, get rid of U.S. stocks and bonds, get rid of dollars, load up on foreign stocks, emerging markets, gold, silver, gold stocks. You know, we could be uh, about to see a huge, huge move. Up until now, it's been slow and steady, right? Well, I think that looks like it's going to change. And again, the same thing for Bitcoin. Bitcoin, I think, has been eking out a top. And uh, it looks to me like it's more likely uh, to break down than break out. Uh, And so, uh, you know, you've pressed your luck if you're still holding on to your cryptos. uh, Well, before your luck runs out, get out and get into sound money and other ways of preserving your purchasing power because purchasing power is going to be destroyed in the United States in ways that have been unimaginable. Uh, And it's unfortunate, you know, I think that I'm going to be vindicated on these forecasts that I've been making for many, many years. And I'm not going to take any pleasure in the fact that I'm going to be vindicated in an even greater way than I originally thought. Because a lot of my worst case scenarios, a lot of the things that I feared most are happening. In fact, they're happening worse than I actually thought possible, right? So I think the collapse is going to be more spectacular than the one that I originally envisioned. And because we uh, succeeded uh, all of these years in kicking the can down the road, that success comes at a tremendous cost. Uh, for the U.S. economy, because we made all the problems worse. We made the bubble much bigger. And so now there's a lot more air that's going to come out. Uh, So it does mean that there's a much bigger payday uh, for my investment strategy. Yes, we're going to get paid later than I thought, but we're going to be paid much bigger than I thought. But the price in terms of what's going to happen to the U.S. economy and the American way of life is also going to be much greater. And it doesn't make me happy. I don't get any kind of personal satisfaction in being right about forecasting such horrible things happening to a country that I love. Uh, But I'm sure I will have some satisfaction in the fact that at least I saw it coming early enough uh, to help enough people, enough Americans in particular, save themselves. Because the key to getting the country on the right track eventually is to make sure that the people that know what that track is don't go bankrupt, don't get wiped out, because so many Americans will. It's those of us who don't. It's those of us who preserve our wealth now by getting it out of U.S. dollars, by buying gold, by investing in foreign assets. We're going to have the resources to repatriate and bring that money home and hopefully try to rebuild America uh, once there's a better appreciation and understanding uh, among the electorate of, of why uh, the economy collapsed in the first place and what actually needs to be done uh, to solve it. Because Donald Trump did show that maybe Americans are ready to make America great again. I mean, even though Donald Trump didn't talk about the need to cut government spending because he thought maybe that wasn't a way uh, to get elected, maybe 
since things are going to be so much worse in 2024 than they were in 2016, maybe there will be uh, a, 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 a political uh, route for somebody who can level with uh, the public about the need to cut government spending dramatically and the, the, uh, the, the long-term gain that would be associated with that temporary short-term pain suffered by those who are giving up a government check. And again, if the dollar is worthless, the appeal of a government check is going to be greatly diminished because what good is money that doesn't buy anything?